Psalm 41 is the last book in book one of the Psalter, the songbook of Israel. The songbook that reveals the nature of praise. If you want to, if you want to praise God in a way that pleases Him, you need look no further than the Psalter. The way that the Psalms are laid out because of the sheer length, the number of Psalms, uh, it was divided into five separate scrolls, and Psalm 1 through 41 comprised the first book. Uh, this also is the end of the longest run of Davidic psalms, 39 in a row psalms written entirely by David from Psalm 3 through 41. The first word of Psalm 41 is the word blessed or ashrei in Hebrew. It's the same word that opens Psalm 1. So it's kind of like bookends. You remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who uh, does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or, or stand in the path of sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffer, right? That word blessed, same word, opens up this psalm. And I don't believe that's a, a coincidence. I believe it was purposely selected by whomever compiled the psalms into scrolls in order for us to remember, as you come to the last book, that blessedness that was linked to the one who meditates on the word of God from Psalm 1. And not just the first psalm, but really the entire book of psalms from 1 through 41. It's a reminder to us to review and think about all that we've learned about God, about the Messiah, about ourselves in these 39 psalms. The first two psalms are introductory psalms. They reveal the blessedness of God's people who meditate on the word. And it also reveals in Psalm 2 the final victory of the Messianic king. Over the next 39 psalms, David shows us the heart of praise uh, that's rooted in understanding God and understanding his forgiveness. They demonstrate how to be right with God, at peace with God, how to have rest for your souls. They show us the folly of atheism and unbelief. They reveal the majestic attributes of God's justice and mercy and his long-suffering righteousness and steadfast love. At least six of these psalms speak of God's deliverance from David's enemies. The 16th psalm is a prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah. The 22nd psalm of his death. On the cross, we hear of a good shepherd who cares for his sheep and a great shepherd who will return in righteous judgment to reward his sheep. In these psalms, God is our light, our salvation, our glory, our joy, and our refuge. A few months ago, when we returned to our exposition of psalms with Psalm 36, we saw the infinite contrast between the evildoer and God. And then in Psalm 37, we revisited the evildoer and it exhorted us to wait on God, particularly when we find evil prospering in the world. We can trust that God, we can rest secure that God is in control of all circumstances. In Psalm 38, we found King David afflicted because of his own sin. And amidst great trial and suffering, David lied silent under the smarting rod of God, waiting, though, for his expectation, his expectation that God would deliver him. Psalm 39 shared things in common with Psalm 38, suffering that comes from the hand of God due to personal sin, silent waiting in the midst of suffering, the frailty and the brevity of life. 
And that those themes are again going to appear in Psalm 41. We're going to see again weakness, suffering, the frailty of life. These are all themes in the last five or six psalms that it was believed that they were organized in this fashion to close out book one with these repeated ideas. Today we come to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 in the title, like many, is a song. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And I'll open by reading the first three verses, Psalm 41, verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give up, give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. When we study the Psalms, there are essentially three approaches whereby we would gain most from the text. And this is true not only for preaching, but true of your own personal study as well. First, most obviously, we should read the psalm in its grammatical and historical context. That is, as a psalm, it has a context. There's an author, in this case David, an author's perspective. This is necessary because we want to make an appropriate and proper application to what we read. Uh, psalms can be intensely emotional and personal. And very often when we open up the psalms, we want to go straight to the application. God, what are you saying to me? But we need to first understand what was meant by the physical author, in this case David, when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this psalm. So it's important to understand the original context. Before then, secondly, we do uh, read the psalm for, from a personal perspective. As God is speaking to us, as this is his word, and he does speak to us. And he gives us in his word ways to apply that word or use the words of that psalm in your prayer to God appropriately. But then it doesn't end there. Because whenever we're reading the Old Testament, it's important that we do so in the light of Jesus' words in Luke 24, where Jesus said that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled and it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The scriptures, what he's referring to is the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, and the law of Moses. That's how the Old Testament is divided up. And he goes on and he says, this is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. What's that? That's the gospel. So now, as New Covenant believers, knowing this, we can go back and read the Old Testament, not merely as the words of David, but with an eye for Christ, an eye for his death, an eye for his resurrection, scanning the scriptures for how it preaches the gospel to us. And a good study of any psalm would utilize all three of these approaches. And this is what I will attempt to do today using Psalm 41 to use it as an example so that you might take this same approach for any psalm that you wish to study, beginning with the exposition of the text. It is written by King David from his own personal experience. We're going to seek to understand that experience. 
We're going to seek to understand it in the grammatical and histor- using grammatical and historical tools. The first thing he does in the first three verses is to announce a truth statement. This is a catechism of sorts. It's a truth about God and how God relates to his people. That's the opening stanza of the first three verses that I just read. And what does it do? First, it pronounces a blessing upon those who have regard for the poor or who consider the poor. And then he follows that up with a series of promises in the way that God blesses those who regard have regard for the poor. So first, what's the truth statement? The first line, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed, ashrei in Hebrew. Often understood or tried to be preached as the word happy. But happy has kind of a frivolous, frothy connotation in our culture. Happiness is something you clap along to. You know, remember that old song, ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. Landlord said your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. He says, I'm happy. Happiness was not always that frothy in Western history. I had the occasion this past week to visit the nation's capital. And for the first time, I went to the Jefferson Memorial. On the walls of the Jefferson Memorial are those infamous words from the Declaration of Independence. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that's happiness linked to life and liberty is more in line with the Hebrew word ashrei than the way we understand happiness in our culture today as something to clap along to. Ashrei conveys the idea of living life as God intended before the fall, even amidst the reality of a fallen world. Brethren, God's word tells you that you can be happy in the biblical sense of the word, whole, full, joyful, blessed. And he tells you how to do that. Psalm 1 tells you how to do that. How? Make the word of God your meditation day and night, and you will be blessed. Don't stand, don't walk, don't sit in the council or way or seat of the sinner or the scoffer. And then Psalm 41 tells us how to be blessed. It says, by considering the poor. Now that ought to prompt a question. As you're reading and praying and saying, Lord, I want to apply this. I want to be blessed. How might I consider the poor? What does this mean to consider the poor? Does it mean I just drop some change in the cup of a homeless man on the street and I'm going to be blessed? Does it mean I give a dollar or two to that poor mother with the sign while I'm waiting at the red light? Is that considering the poor? Well, only a grammatical, historical understanding of what David meant and what God meant by consider the poor can answer those questions. The two words I want to uh, talk about here, consider and poor, will tell us exactly what is intended for the child of God to be blessed. What does it mean to consider the poor? First, the word consider. Some of your versions might say have regard for. The word is masculine. 
Maskil means to gain insight. It suggests far more than compassionate concern. It's not linked to token giving out of emotion. Maskil, consider, regard, reflects the ability to listen, to understand, and to develop a thoughtful response to the need. This is the word that is used in 1 Samuel 18 as David's perceptive ability in battle. Amos uses the word to describe a person who's wise enough to know when to keep quiet under difficult circumstances. I think the English word discretion comes to mind. Consider, have discretion, thoughtful, listen, understand, and develop a thoughtful response. And this is directed to who? The poor. The the word is often translated as weak because it extends far more than mere financial need. This is applied to physical weakness or spiritual weakness. In 2 Samuel 3.1, it's described as the weakening of Saul's house compared to the strengthening of David's. So the claim that David is making here in this truth statement in verse 1 is this. Blessed are those who gain insight into a thoughtful solution to help the weak and needy. Then you will be blessed, happy, content, full, and whole. This condition is manifested, this condition of blessedness, in seven ways. God God tells us, look at the remainder of verses 1 through verse 3. This is the way that God will bless you. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Seven promises of deliverance, protection, preservation, sustenance, healing, and restoration are conveyed in this idea of blessed happiness. Promises from God. Now, this is stated as a general truth, a catechism, something that David would have learned in Sabbath school. It is exactly what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In the Olivet Discord, Jesus described those who are blessed as as those who gave something to the hungry to eat or drink to the thirsty or invited strangers or clothed the naked or took care of the sick or visited those who are in prison. Those are the ones who are called blessed. God's Promises of blessing go to those who bless others, particularly those who bless others in need in substantive ways. Now, that's stated as an objective truth. Notice the Lord, right? He mentions the Lord. In the day of trouble, the Lord will deliver. The Lord protects him. The Lord sustains him. Third person. But now he's going to turn and talk about this. He's going to shift from the third person to the second person it is going to become personal in verses 4 through 10. And as it is personal, David is identifying himself. He's saying, God is gracious to the needy. I'm needy. He acknowledges his personal sin and his weakness, and he asks God for mercy amidst a merciless enemy who seeks to destroy him. Let's read verses 4 through 10. As for me, I said... O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. 
My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And he goes out and he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay him. Now, David here does not claim any right to mercy. No one has a right to mercy. The idea that God extends mercy to those who are merciful does not suggest that mercy is his reward or his gift. By definition, mercy is undeserved. It is God's favor upon sinners who deserve the exact opposite. That's what mercy is. So when David asks for mercy, he does so from the posture of his own neediness. Look again at verse 4. O Lord, be gracious or be merciful to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. If you remember back a few weeks ago in Psalm 38, we talked about the link between trials and suffering and personal sin. David is aware that at least some of his suffering is God chastening him for his sin. And he recognizes his need for mercy here. In particular, he needs mercy because there's a ferocious enemy that seeks to destroy him. That enemy is described in the next four verses. David's enemies want him to die. They want to wipe out his name. In verse 5, it says, when will he die and his name perish? They want to wipe out his entire family name. They want to erase his memory from the earth. These are a jealous people. Soon, God willing, God willing, the 1st of October, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. And we're going to see in that book, as it progresses, how the jealousy of King Saul drove the rage and the hate to the point where he sought to kill David. Verse 6, then, the people that come to David have a fake concern. He says they utter empty words. Oh, we'll pray for you, David. We hope you get better soon, David. Fake smiles, they go their way and all the way they're regarding that iniquity in their heart and they can't just, they can't wait to get out and gossip about him. Speak their evil to others. Verse 7, they whisper, that is, they gossip. They imagine or plan his demise. Verse 8, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. This is the chatter, the, the gossip that's going on. Ha ha. You know, he's down, he won't get up. There's no way he's coming out of this. And then to add insult to injury, injury, it's not only David's enemies, but what hurts most is that his own familiar friend joined in this plot against him. They join in the mockery. They join in the hatred. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16 takes place during the rebellion of Absalom. Absalom was David's son. Talk about being betrayed. David's son Absalom begins a rebellion in beginning in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 16. It talks about two of David's friends, Hushai 
and his trusted counselor, Ahithophel. Two men who were close with David, who, who supped with David, who shared bread with David. The sharing of bread in the Hebrew mindset was one of the most intimate moments of life. We remember Jesus at the end of his life, how the final, uh, at the Last Supper, it's, he opened that up by saying, I've longed to share this, this Passover with you. I've longed to break bread with you, who I call my friends. The betrayal here is one who has shared bread, and that is particularly distressing. This is someone who is close to David. You could feel the pain in that verse 9. It's palpable, the pain that he's experiencing. But look at 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 15. Now Absalom, that's David's son, and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is your loyalty for your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? And then Ahithophel gives counsel. I won't get into the details of it, but he gives counsel basically to tell Absalom, show your public disrespect for your father. Make it public. Make it in the sight of all the people. Now, Ahithophel's words were considered God's word in the time. Ahithophel was the prophet of the land. So if Hithophel gave counsel, that was like coming from God. Now look, go to chapter 17. Moreover, Hithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down only the king I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes to home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. This is Ahithophel's counsel, David's counselor, David's trusted friend, sided with David's rebellious son to plot to have him killed. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, despite the best laid plans of men, God had other plans and preserved David's life and overturned the whole thing and actually used Hushai as a kind of a double agent. God was gracious to David and did deliver David from these plots. David pray, as, as David prays in verse 10 of our psalm, back in Psalm 41, verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay him. Now, might take note that I may repay him has a vindictive ring to it. David was incensed by the rebellion. And Psalms are an expression of David's emotion. David was a human being, after all, and he had a full range of emotion. So this desire to have revenge in his prayer Raise me up, Lord, so I can get back at them. 
it's possible here that David is, the psalm is giving voice to David's emotion, whether sinful or not. Certainly on other occasions, we see David fully trusting God. There's no revenge, no vindictiveness at all. He doesn't want to take revenge, leave it to, to the Lord. David dealt with Saul this way. He had many occasions to take Saul's life, but David left the penalty for Saul's sins against him completely to God. God will vindicate me. That was David's attitude. Here he's saying that I may repay them. There is a possibility that some commentators suggest about verse 10, raise me up that I may repay him, and that is considering the context. David is king of Israel. He has a responsibility to punish evildoers. And some propose that as king, David is praying that God would restore him to the throne so that as king he might execute justice on this illegal rebellion. He might execute justice on these insurgents. They deserve to be punished by law. They came against the king. So many see no disconnect between David's willingness to allow the Lord personal vengeance for the sins that are against him, and yet at the same time take his responsibility as king to uphold the law. And brethren, we can apply this to our own lives when we think of when someone wrongs us. When someone wrongs you, they can and should be forgiven on a personal level. But if that person has broken the law, to desire justice, to see them pay the penalty for their crime, is not ungodly. As God's people, we should rejoice when justice is done. Even as we do pray for the individual repentance of that person. I'll give you an illustration. Today, we have a brother in Christ by the name of David Berkowitz. If you're not familiar with him, he's serving six life sentences in a correctional facility in upstate New York. David Berkowitz was responsible for the murder of six young ladies in Queens back in the 1970s. And I remember this. I remember the fear that my cousins had three young ladies living in Queens at that time. Some point along the way, Berkowitz has repented and put his faith in Christ. And we could praise God. If that is genuine, we praise God for that. We rejoice in it, but we don't need that to result in him being released as he pays the just penalty for his evil. In the case of David, the same thing. Some believe in verse 10 that he desires justice upon those who turned against him. That he's not seeking personal revenge, but justice for the glory of God. Finally, then, verses 11 and 12, you see that David's confidence that he will be vindicated, that God is for him and will not abandon him. Look at verse 11 and 12. By this I know you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. You see, David's faith, whether or not the victory was coming sooner or later, David knows God delights in me. They're not going to shout and triumph over me. God's upholding me. He trusts in the goodness of God, that God's sovereign will is for him, and if God is for him, who can be against him? 
He trusts the goodness and wisdom of a, of a sovereign God that is for him. You're pleased with me. You, you delight in me. My enemy will not triumph. You uphold me. And most importantly, David's hope here is not for a physical restoration, but he says in verse 12, it concludes, you set me in your presence forever. He's saying basically, even though I'm going through hell right now, my enemies are gossiping about me. My closest friend just betrayed me. I'm being slandered. They're whispering against me. They want to destroy me. My health is failing me. Everything is falling apart. I'm at this lowest valley of my life, but yet, God, you're pleased. You delight. You uphold me. And you will welcome me into close fellowship. And this makes him victorious. It may have looked to everyone in the world that Absalom was going to win. Absalom was going to usurp David's throne. But David trusted God. He had fellowship with God. His friends may have forsaken him, but he has a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And verse 13 is that fitting outbreak of praise to end not only the 41st Psalm, but the entire book of Psalms, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now, most believe these inspired words in verse 13 were not written by David, but by the one who compiled the psalm into the five scrolls. Because at the end of each scroll, there is this benediction that ends with an outburst of praise followed by a double amen or an amen hallelujah or, as it ends all the psalms, a double hallelujah. These are at the end of each of the five Scrolls of the Psalms. So verse 13 is believed to be the benediction of the first book of Psalms. Now, you have the exposition. With that under our belts, let's turn to consider what is the appropriate application of this text. What is God saying to us? First, from the first three verses, it's very clear that God blesses the merciful with mercy. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if you make an application and you desire God to be merciful to you, what what do you do? You look to extend mercy to others. You ask, how might I extend mercy to those who are in need? And the exposition now has made it clear that the answer to this question is not by emotionally throwing a few dollars out the window at the homeless person or sponsoring a poor child from Bolivia. These may be wonderful things in and of themselves, and you may do them to the glory of God, but this is not what the text of Scripture is describing as considering the needy. Now, neither does extending mercy to others mean that you turn a blind eye to sin. But rather, it's when someone is needy, you ask questions, you listen for answers. You find a brother or sister in the church that's needy, whether it's a physical need or a spiritual need or or both. Very often they're connected. And you start to ask them questions. You try to gain insight into the real needs of this person. I know the deacons do this when there's a physical need. You try to get insights into the needs of that person. What questions can I ask them? I don't want to write this person off as hopeless. I don't want to judge them. I want to understand them. I don't want to just give them a pat answer. It takes time to understand the needs of others. It requires the building of relationships. 
that needy person is not a project for you to fix. And sometimes we think that we can decide from the outside what the problem is without really asking those questions. What's this problem that besets this person without hearing them out? And we deem ourselves to be discerning and we think of the catch-all answer that's unilaterally going to solve everyone's problems. And we have no clue what their problem really is. And then you end up alienating and offending the person uh, you are called to love and help. Friends, there are weaker brothers and sisters here in our own church. And some are going through seasons of need. You who are spiritual, ask questions. Be patient. Consider. Regard their need. Consider, how can I help them? Extend the same kind of mercy that you would want for yourself in your own struggles. That is what masculine requires. Consideration, thought, discretion. Then in Psalm 41, as David moves from the general exhortation to regard the weak to the personal account of his own weakness and trials, you do the same. Realize we too are no better than those who are called to minister to. We too have struggles. We too have sins. As we minister to one another, we are, in in those famous words, we are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Now theirs may be a different weakness than yours. You may have a strength in an area that someone else has a weakness and you can minister in your strength to their weakness. But as sanctified as you think you are, your sins are just as many. We are not so different from the needy whom we serve. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means, he says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees believed themselves righteous, and so they missed out on the work of the great physician on their souls because they couldn't see what they shared in common with those tax collectors and sinners. It's the the only way, as you see your own need for mercy, that you will realize that though your sins are many, His mercy is more. Verses 5 through 9 of the psalm are primarily about David's enemies. And when we apply this psalm, we have a tendency as we always do, to see ourselves as the hero. I'm David in this psalm, and those all are my enemies, that one who's talking about me, that one who betrayed me. But don't miss this important truth here. If you have a little Bible knowledge, or if you read the devotional this this week, you know that Psalm 41.9 was quoted, at least in part, by Jesus at the Last Supper. Let's look at that. Turn to John 13. In John 13, that's where the Last Supper that Jesus longed to have with his friends, his disciples, and the disciples are gathered there, and Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to be merciful. And he washes their feet. They have a need. Their feet are dirty. They have a physical need in this case. Their feet are dirty, and Jesus ministers to that need. He shows mercy to their need by washing the disciples' feet. It's a symbol of all of our need. These very disciples, that night, including at that table were Judas, was Judas. But all the disciples that night 
were either going to betray, deny, or forsake him. They were going to scatter in fear. Rather than acting as Jesus' friend and having his back in his time of need, they all stumbled. They all ran away when the going got hot. So when Jesus shows mercy by serving these men, by washing their feet, look at verse 12. At the end, he gets up and he asks them, verse 12, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, there's that word again, blessed are you what? If you do them. That's the blessing of the merciful. Following Jesus' example in blessing others and showing mercy to others, you will be blessed. Same message as Psalm 41. But look at verse 18. This promised blessing is not karma. Okay? Don't get this wrong. Don't just think like, okay, I get it. I just have to go out and be good to others and God is going to be good to me. I get it. That's karma. That's all that is, right? No, this blessing is limited. Look at verse 18. Not everyone can be blessed. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, but what do you notice? Look at this closely. What does David say? Put them side by side. I'll do this for you. Psalm 41.9, David says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He leaves out close friend in whom I've trusted. Why? Because Jesus knew who Judas was from the beginning. Jesus permitted Judas, his predestined enemy, to be in the place at his table where he would betray him. He gave him an intimate place at his table, but he never trusted him. He knew who he was. But notice the response that the disciples give, verse 21. And this is really what I want to zero in on in our personal application, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, if you remember the account from Matthew, I won't have you turn there. But when at this moment, at this exact moment where Jesus reveals that he's going to be betrayed, the disciples' response was one of sorrow. And it says they began to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? So Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9, and the disciples' response is, Is it I, Lord? I've supped at his table. Am I his enemy? And I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that as you read Psalm 41, not as David's words, but as the words of Christ, where he describes his enemy, that your reaction would not be so quick to look at all those who turned against you, but look at yourself as the disciples did, and say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord, who have been your enemy? 
Is it I, Lord, who have spurned your counsel and hated your knowledge? Is it I, Lord, whose thought I know better? Is it I, Lord, who've offered up vain words to you on Sunday while my heart was far from you? Is it I, Lord, who gathers malice and iniquity in my heart? Is it I, Lord, who have pushed you away, even wishing that I never knew about the way of salvation? Is it I, Lord, who have ignored you, kept you at arm's length, not embraced you in my life? Is it I, Lord, who have enjoyed the benefits of life and liberty and joy, and yet when you've asked for a commitment to follow you, I have turned away? Is it I who have lifted up my heel against you? David knew his imperfections well enough. He didn't imagine himself to be always right. So when he comes to the end of the psalm and he's relieved because of that vindication, it's so heartfelt. He knows this mercy that he's getting from God is undeserved. He's gone through this. Is it I, Lord? And he, he rejoices in that most important aspect of that vindication. Not the revenge or downfall of his enemies, but Lord, you've restored me to fellowship despite the enemy that I've been to you. You've set me in your presence forever. Friend, will you examine yourself first before looking at who your enemy might be in this psalm? Will you ask, is it I, Lord, for it's only those who were once his enemy, as the, song, as the song goes, who are seated at his table. Now, the psalm does teach about a real physical enemy who seeks to destroy us. Ultimately, for the Christian, that enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers. But principalities and powers use people. And not just any people, not just acquaintances, sometimes even the closest and most intimate friends. Why? Because he wants to hurt you. Satan wants to wound you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to ruin your testimony. And because we're relational creatures, we receive both the greatest blessings in life as well as the starkest wounds in life from those who are closest to us. That's reality. And that's the pain that you see in David's words. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Have you ever felt that pain? Being betrayed by someone who you gave your life, sowed your life, someone you loved, you've poured out into, you gave of yourself, you helped, you ministered, and they turned against you? Take heart. Brothers and sisters, though human beings will do that, Jesus is your friend and he sticks closer than a brother. God has got your back. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Let him throw, let Satan throw everything. Let Satan buffet and trials come. Greater is he, as my brother told me this week, God is undefeated. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Where are your accusers? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it who condemns? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? 
persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Who will separate you from the love of Christ? He says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me, brethren. If death cannot destroy you, if angels cannot destroy you, if dark powers of evil cannot take you down or anything else in all creation, then certainly no human being, try as he might, can take you out. Nothing shall separate you. You have victory in Jesus. You have already won the battle in Christ. Finally, briefly, let's consider the gospel in Psalm 41. How do these words point to the greater David, the Messiah Jesus? Well, Jesus Christ was the perfect Son of God in human flesh. He lived the perfect life and he showed mercy. In his life he showed mercy, he healed the sick. I think of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Jesus was merciful, he gave him his sight, and he did this to thousands of sick, blind, lame, paralytic, demon-possessed people. He had mercy on them. Jesus exemplified this blessed man of Psalm 41 who considered the poor and the weak during his life. Like David, David's greater son had enemies in this world, and they sought to wipe out his name. Ultimately, his enemies pursued Jesus all the way to the cross, using one of his own familiar friends who broke bread at his table for three years, Judas, the man from Cariot, who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, and like Ahithophel, ended up hanging himself. Parallels between Judas and Ahithophel. Jesus was mocked by Jews and Gentiles and thieves and by those he came to save. Even his very closest disciples scattered, abandoned him. But David's greater son did not seek revenge. He could have called upon a myriads of angels to step in and fight for him. Instead, he bowed his head, taking upon himself the torture of a crucifixion stake and the anguish of his separation from his father. And the greater David extended mercy even to those doing that, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in his death, Jesus continues to consider the weak by saving them. Jesus died on the cross in the place of the weak, and needy. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were his enemies, Romans 5, 8 and 10, God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. How grateful can we be that we can be once his enemy and today called his friend? But that vindication came to Christ as he didn't stay in the, 
in the grave. They, they took him down off the cross. They put him in the grave. But on the third day, God was gracious to him and raised him from the dead. And the final enemy, death, did not triumph over him. And in this act of raising Jesus, God the Father showed that he was pleased, that he was delighted in his finished work of his son. As the psalmist wrote in verse 12, the Father upheld him because of his integrity and set him in his presence forever, even at his right hand. Hallelujah. And to this, Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Father handed over all vindication, all judgment. The same Jesus who died and rose is coming back, not to save, but to judge the living and the dead. He is going to execute perfect justice and vindication upon all who do not know him. So today is your day to be saved. Today is the way to be saved. Today is your day to be saved from this impending wrath that is coming upon this world. Today is the day of salvation. If you will call upon the name of the Lord today, you will be saved. You will not always have this chance. If you trust Christ today, you will not only escape that judgment, but you will be a friend of God. You will find rest for your soul. You'll no longer be his enemy. You'll no longer be striving. You'll have be seated at his table. You'll be joined to Christ in his resurrection. You will have pleased the Father in Christ. You will be upheld in Christ against the onslaught of the enemy of your soul. You are more than conquerors in him who loved you. And there is a great and wonderful day coming, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will break bread with our heavenly friend and Savior in His presence forever. Amen.